Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Welcome, welcome. This is the last uh, show of ours, anyway, before the holiday begins. It's the nose. We're happy to have the nose uh, right before the holidays uh, joining us in studio, making a triumphant return. Although I really don't feel like you've been away all that long. It's only been a few months. Yeah, yeah. but uh, Teresa Kramer, who announced her semi-retirement from the nose, so she could move to Brattleboro, Vermont. I'm like Jay Z. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> she's back here, stinking of wood smoke. Uh, she's a writer and editor of eContent Magazine. Uh, and yes, she lives in Brattleboro. Um, James Hanley is the co-founder of Cine Studio at Trinity College. I will save James the trouble and say if you are jonesing to see It's a Wonderful Life and you like to see it with other people on a nice big screen, uh, that's something that you could do there right now. Just hurry on over. Well, not right this second, but hurry on over there. Uh, tonight or this weekend. Uh, Kate Russian is a teaching artist at the Connecticut Office uh, of the Arts and a Pushcart Pushcart Prize nominated poet. Her work can be found in the Women's Review of Books and the Cape Cod Poetry Review. They're all here in the second segment of the show. We all went to see the movie Lady Bird. We're going to tell you what we think about it. Um, uh, But here at the beginning, we are going to talk, first of all, about the Pope. Not just about the Pope, but about the fact fact that the Pope is suggesting some revision, a tweaking uh, of the Lord's Prayer which is like the kind of thing you don't even really think anybody can do, but um, you're wrong. And we're also going to talk about cashless society, the fact that increasingly we don't walk around with uh, brass in pocket, as the song goes. And as a result, when we run into people who are either mendicants on the street or people who need some small amount or should get some small amount of tip from us, uh, we don't have that money. What are we going to do about that? So um, all of that is to come. But yes, let's let's begin with the Lord's Prayer. Uh, in, in a Earlier this month in a television interview, uh, Pope Francis said that he thought that the part of the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, was not a good translation of the ancient texts. Do not let us fall into temptation, he suggested, would be better because God doesn't lead people into temptation. Satan does. Um, now, uh, there may be any number of people here on the nose who don't believe in either God or Satan, um, and that's fine. Um, but uh, the Pope is the Pope, and the Lord's Prayer is the Lord's Prayer, and you're going to go through life, you know, attending funerals and stuff where people ask you to say it. So it's, I don't know, I don't think anybody gets the day off entirely from the Lord's Prayer. But I- I'm going to start with you, Kate Russian, because you're uh, especially uh, in the in the words business, and, and the Lord's Prayer is in its own way kind of a poem. Um, so what's your reaction to Pope Francis's position? Well, I was surprised and thrilled because um, one of the things I do, one of my practices is to to pray and meditate while I'm walking. And while I was walking on the airline trail one day, uh, it hit me. God doesn't lead us into temptation. So in my own mind, I changed it. And uh, so my prayer has been for a while, you do not lead us into temptation. You deliver us from suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I was You want to get the evil out and you and you want to you're doing two different things. Here. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I as I said, I'm, I'm a uh, Cambridge insight meditation 
practitioner as well as uh, an AME. And uh, so suffering worked for me as mm-hmm. well. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. And um, but so but your point is your other point is basically Pope Francis's point. You know, what's up with even and but of course the thing that well I don't know we'll come back to the thing that you do. I think it's very interesting. Um, Yeah, but yeah, you do not lead us into temptation is what I came to for myself as a poet, and it just struck me as I was walking. Well, it's God doesn't lead us into temptation, right? Although James. Um, well, let, let's respond to Kate for a second, and then we can also respond to the Pope, uh, and then Teresa can tell us why we shouldn't be talking about any of this in the first place. But um, the, I mean, the only problem with what Kate's doing in terms of you know, making it out of her hikes and uh, into wider circulation is it's more that's sort of like giving God some props, whereas most of the prayer is sort of asking God for various things, right? Um, So I don't know. What's your general response to this? I don't want to lead you into the temptation (laughs) of talking about what I want to talk about. When I hear about leading into temptation, I'm thinking of being susceptible to being led. Mm -hmm. You know, that that, uh, if, I mean, there's a sort of preconception there about assuming that somebody can be drawn in or can be led to something, that they're already sort of preconceived that this would be more fun than not being. (laughs) And so... It's sort of like a uh, it, it, it's a kind of a semantic thing in that sense. Um, but I'm not sure that falling into temptation is like I don't know. My first reaction to that is thinking about it as being not being responsible. Oops, I fell into the temptation and again, you know, I did it again. Yes, exactly. And and you can sort of be forgiven and say really sorry that happened, and then next week you know it can happen again. That is the Britney Spears version of the Lord's Prayer you're talking about right now, but. <laughs> Well, I think I—I I mean, I—I I think these words. I wonder, you know, when these words are, when people hear these words, they're such rote words that people don't. I'm not sure how many people really think about what they mean at the time, and so it's used so often. Um, it does. It doesn't uh, it, to actually sit here and think about well, well, what do those words mean? I mean, I I I so often think that that words that are written and are used as rote are kind of a protection in a way to actually thinking about what those things mean. And 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 for instance, temptation. What is temptation? I mean, are you predisposed to think that well, the tempting things are the really fun things, but you shouldn't, or uh, are they? Is this something that is an instruction? Uh, I, you know, I mean, I never really think about it that way. I have to say. Well, we can come back to that for a second, in a second too, because I'll say one thing. This, I think, what's implicit in the in the two part, uh, the two clauses, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The implication is the temptation would be to do evil things. Now, that ultimately still begs the question, right? We still don't know what evil things are and whether those are things that are, in fact, quite delightful yeah. uh, for many of us. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, Teresa now has the floor. Well, I so if you paid me money right now, I could not recite to you the Lord's Prayer. So before I left the house this morning, I asked my boyfriend who went to um, Catholic school for his entire education what he thought. And he was like, you know, they keep changing things about the masses. And, and you know, I, you know, like you were saying before, Colin, you end up at a funeral or a christening or something and you, you hear what's changed. And he's like, I get the feeling that they're just rearranging the chairs on the Titanic, that they're not addressing the problems that are, you know, rampant in the church and instead are focusing on things like this. 
my, you know, from what I read in the emails that we sent around, mm -hmm. the thing that interested me most is the reaction of people who are like, you can't change the prayer. Mm -hmm. even, they apparently don't realize it's been translated a million times. And, but, um, but so much of, I, even, especially among my generation, when I see someone who, especially Catholics who are still going to church, who do not agree with, you know, 75% of the church's teaching, but continue to go to church, I ask them why, and more often than not, it's just about tradition, right? So when you go and change the prayer that they've been saying their whole lives, they're like, I don't care what it means or if it's inaccurate, <laughs> just let me say what I've always been saying. Mm -hmm. Because didn't they change like the peace be with you? You say something else now instead of and also with you, you say something else now. I guess I, I yeah, have no. Depends idea. where you are, but yeah. yes. Um, and and that's like why? Why did you do this to me? Now I don't know what's happening when I show up at church. And so like, this was a place of comfort, and now you're moving things around, and I don't know where I am. Anymore. I was going to offer you twenty mm -hmm. bucks to say the Lord's prayer, but as you've pointed out elsewhere, <laughs> no. we don't carry cash around anymore, yeah. so you'd, <laughs> you'd have to just take my word for it. Mm -hmm. um, so. There's two things that I want to talk about here, and, and well, Kate, maybe we can uh, we can deal with one of the things that Teresa said. So Armstrong Williams, who is a sort of all-purpose conservative commenter uh, commentator on everything, apparently says that it's, it's dangerous uh, to change these words. You know, I I I like uh, Teresa can't imagine that he doesn't know mm -hmm. that the the Bible was not originally written in English mm -hmm. and that there are scores of translations uh, in English and it's been translated into many, 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 many languages. I'd but, just like to say that on one occasion I worked alongside Armstrong Williams. We appeared together on an MSNBC segment. You may be underestimating the number of things he does not know. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. feel free to continue. But, but you know, I, I think what it, the main thing I take away from this that I think is important is that the words we say do matter. Mm -hmm. And I can't help but think about um, uh, the way that words have been changed and used to manipulate, manipulate people in, in the uh, political discourse. So, you know, we started out with uh, busing for integration and then we have forced busing. And this morning I heard a tape of uh, President Reagan uh, and, and President Trump talking about welfare and welfare queens. And I think about mm -hmm. the use of the term crack babies and three strikes you're out and the takers. And so words really do matter and I think we really do need to pay attention uh, to how we use words and what we're saying and what's said in the public conversation and what messages everybody is getting. So I appreciate uh, that the Pope has brought this up. I, I totally agree with that. I mean, I think that words indeed do matter, and we are lulled into the idea with all of the discourse in very short form and, and, and easy epithets that are bandied around, it, that people tend to forget that. And they take refuge also in rote, which is like, you know, sort of boilerplate. Okay, we'll say this and then assume that it means a certain thing, but it's hiding behind it, really. And I think that if there's anything that is important, it's to pick your words carefully and, as you were saying, to to actually um, parse what those meanings are because there are many times, it's like talking points that are put out by politicians, that the talking points are intended to preempt the thought that you might have to understand what, 
say, the term crack baby means, and they want you to have an image in your head. And so I think that that applies to rote prayers and rote language entirely throughout throughout the human experience. And it's very easy to fall into being that sort of false reassurance. And then people complain, oh, it's, a, you know, Armstrong Williams says, oh, it's dangerous to change it. But that's a very self-serving thing to say, considering the other things that he says. Well, first of all, I, I, one thing I want to do, uh, I've been obsessed all week long with this notion from Dahlia Lithwick that um, the world can be divided up into chaos Muppets uh, and order Muppets. And so popes, popes, and I might add archbishops of Canterbury and lots of other people, they tend to be order Muppets because, like, why be the pope if you're not an order Muppet? Order Muppets are people like Kermit who seek order and who seek um, uh, the well, yeah, the, the the enforcing of some kind of common peace reassurance and reassurance and things like that. Yes, thank you. Uh, and chaos Muppets are people like the Cookie Monster and Grover and Gonzo and uh, you know, so an animal, you know, mm-hmm. and and so popes tend to be of the former sort, and they tend to be sometimes even you know Sam the Eagle type, real crack down um, order Muppets because that's why you're pope. Uh, the exceptions being John the Twenty Third, and this Pope. This Pope is a chaos muppet. He, I mean, he goes on television and says, "You know what? Let's start saying the Lord's Prayer differently." And he freaks out Armstrong Williams. And I would also say this is that the Archbishop of Canterbury, currently in England right now, Justin Welby, I think he's a little bit of a chaos muppet too. He's constantly, you know, bringing up all kinds of things that Archbishops of Canterbury, and he's totally at war with Donald Trump right now. Uh, and so I'm I, in the way these super hierarchical religions that tend to pound a lot of rote stuff down people's throats. Mm-hmm. I like the fact that they these are talking points now as opposed to end of conversation things. It is sort of interesting because I was thinking in terms – this in terms of it being the pope and it being Catholicism that this affects, right? Because no one else has to change their Lord's Prayer just because the pope says. But Catholics do, right? So um, – I, you know, it's not a religion that lends itself well to discussion, right? Because the idea is that you do have this hierarchy and you just have to do what the Pope says. That's the idea. Like, you, they're not like Congregationalists who are just running around. Making you know, up their yeah. own creeds. <laughs> yeah. Congregationalists yeah. can make up their own creeds. Exactly. So, um, I, and in I think that is in part what lends, you know, sort of wins Catholicism a sort of allegiance from people in the first place that like they don't have to think about it too much for themselves right you don't you just you get it handed to you unlike in say Judaism where the entire point is to argue about it all the time and discuss what the book means in Catholicism it's like no the Pope decided this is what it means and this is what you have to do and so when the Pope is you know, lobbing fastballs at you and you're changing things willy-nilly, you, you get a little freaked out. Yeah, But in a good way. All yes. right. So uh, we have to switch topics because it is meet and right so to do. Uh, just something these – was the general Thanksgiving? I keep looking – were you raised in an Anglican church at all or – no, actually. Right. Okay. No, wonder, no wonder these, no wonder these timeless phrases. But now it's your bounding duty to right. go to break. Yeah. I think it used to, yeah. It used to be in the general Thanksgiving, I think. They, they said it is meat and right, so to do. But nobody says stuff and like that And all those anymore. kids misunderstood how it was spelled. Right, exactly. Yeah. Let's have some meat. Uh, all right, so we, we want to talk a little bit about cashlessness. There was an ar- article that circulated around on social media this week um, about the fact that people don't carry cash around anymore. That affects probably how we um, – uh, how we handle people who ask us for spare change or spare money on the streets. Uh, it affects also how we tip people. So, uh, Teresa, you were one of the first people to respond to this. Mm-hmm. What's what's your take on all this? This has been an issue for a while for me because I don't generally carry much cash. And 
it becomes an issue when I travel for the most part because all of a sudden you've got housekeepers in the hotel, maybe doormen at the hotel, people trying to take your bag. Sort of, like I will often be like, no, don't touch my bag because I know I don't have money to tip someone. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not entirely fair. And I have at other times on the rare occasion I go to a nail salon, which is usually because someone has forced me to be in their wedding. Um, I will I have had to call my mom and ask her to come to the salon to give me five dollars to tip someone because I realize I don't have any money on me. So this has been going on for quite a while. I, I mean, this has got to be at least 10 years now I've been dealing with this. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so, I mean, well, I'm just going to go around the table and just sort of see how everybody deals with this. So, James, what was your reaction to this topic in general? Well, I, number one, I feel that it's really important that we have this conversation about people with real jobs and, right. and not people who actually have to rely on tips for their livelihood so that they can pay the rent and buy food. I mean, I've certainly been traveling in Europe and, you know, you talk to people who work in the service industry. It's totally different. Right. And uh, they they do have real jobs and they get real benefits. And, I mean, I feel that those are things, you know, that's the kind of serious conversation we really should have because if you have the cashless society developing with people using all sorts of devices instead of actual cash, then you're further marginalizing all these people who rely on actually having cash. I mean, personally, I actually do make uh, make a point of putting money in my wallet to carry around precisely because of this because I feel it's really like, uh, you know, you, you have to actually accommodate the reality of what what is actually happening now. But um, I, I think conversely, too, some of the people saying now that, well, you should be uh, able to uh, give a tip electronically. But the problem is the same problem that occurs in restaurants with people who put their tips on the credit card. The server doesn't always see that. The management runs off with it in in many cases, and they have to have an argument then about, well, I'll give you like half of it or I'll give you three quarters of it. Although, so, although there's a countervailing argument, and I, I am as confused by all this as anybody could be, but the countervailing argument is if you tip cash, the server gets that cash um, in all the other um, people, the, you know, uh, the, the bus boys. I'm yeah. having word finding I, I, problems. The people in the back, the dishwashers and stuff like that, they don't get any of that. That's right. Who, and right. if two or three people served you, only the person who collects that mm-hmm. cash, unless there's an incredibly good trusting tip pool system. Mm-hmm. You right. know? So that's the argument for writing it on the line there is that at least there's some record of what the tip was. Well, that's true. I think that there is a – but but the – problem is follow through there with the management because essentially the people who are working in the back are even less powerful than the people who are waiting tables. I mm-hmm. mean, they they have no status. The busboys and the cooks and everybody else who are doing rote work in a way that, that they're, they're not being accommodated by that system either. That's why I think that the structure really needs to change. I think that it's something mm-hmm. that we as a society, I mean, I, <laughs> I think... Um, you know, Kate, you mentioned, I think, in our email exchanges, talking about the connection with slavery and, and servants and the whole thing. I mean, it has that sort of nasty aftertaste to me that, okay, these are people who deserve to be waiting on you, and it's their problem to fix this. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's everybody who has to work on this and f- fix it and realize that if you want to go out to eat, it's really important that you actually acknowledge the people who bring you your food and who cook your food and clean the mess you made. This is mm-hmm. something that you actually have a responsibility responsibility to do. Kate? I, I also think it's it's unfair for people's wages 
mm-hmm. to be dependent on tips mm-hmm. uh, because that e- even though I know restaurant margin isn't very high, I know it's a tough business, but still I don't think I, I'm not comfortable with this whole idea of um, of of the weight person's um, living being based on tips, being based on the customers who are already coming in. But I did want to say one thing about the cashlessness from an, another point of view. Um, I was actually drove almost two hours to Stanford to get on Metro North, and I realized I didn't have cash or a credit card. And if I didn't get on that train right now, then my whole day in New York is blown. Mm-hmm. And so I, I got up my nerve to ask people for money because mm-hmm. I was dressed. I said, well, nobody will think I'm running a scam. Mm-hmm. I'm in a jam. And people didn't have money. So many mm-hmm. millennials and mm-hmm. hipsters looked mm-hmm. up from their smartphones and looked at me and was like, I don't have cash. I don't have cash. The argument here, though, is like if you had had a PayPal app on your phone or something, you could have used that app to pay for your ticket. Yes, but then (laughs) PayPal and everybody else then would have all of my info, and Mm -hmm. then you have no privacy at Mm -hmm. all if you're – all, if you have everything connected on your phone. Yeah. So I have a problem with that, too. Uh, right. I, I'm, I'm in the middle of the book, uh, the novel uh, Artemis by uh, Garrett, Andy Weir mm-hmm. right now, and uh, it takes place in the future on the moon, and everybody has what's called a gizmo. And the gizmo is you just wave the gizmo at everything, you mm-hmm. know, and, and it has eliminated. And I think that there's some kind of inherent value in particularly when we're dealing with people who are on the street asking us for money, mm-hmm. there's an inherent value in that exchange taking place. I don't always yes, do it, I, you know, mm-hmm. but I, I said it in the email that Herb Kahn, who was the columnist for the uh, San Francisco Chronicle for decades and decades and decades, he would leave the house every day in the 30s, 40s, 50s with a roll of quarters mm-hmm. in his po- pocket because he knew, because a lot of homeless people in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and uh, he knew he'd be approached and he wanted to give everybody a quarter. That was back when a quarter was actually probably worth something. Mm-hmm. But he thought there was a value in that. And also mm-hmm. as a columnist, he wanted to hear what the person had to say and stuff like that. And so that whole idea that you could be at the train station and nobody has mm-hmm. any money is also going to be affecting people on the street who, for whatever reason, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, a lot of them are probably going to use drugs or whatever. But I mean, judge that however you want. There's some human exchange that goes on. Well, that's, that, you know. I, th- that was sort of the first thing. Because the wait staff, this doesn't really affect so much because there is the option to tip electronically, whether or not it's uh, it becomes a problem later down the road, you can still give a tip, right? It's really for the people who there is no apparatus set up to do that, like the doorman or the, you know, the, the valet, whatever. Um and for people on the street, which has become a thing more for me lately because I did move to Brattleboro and there's a pretty big um, presence of uh, homeless people on the street asking for money. And it's contentious between – and it's almost it's almost too prevalent because unless you're carrying the roll of quarters, you're, you'd run out of money by the time you got, you know, you got to the co-op to buy your groceries or whatever. But um, – but I recently was in – I went to – I was going somewhere and I parked in the downtown lot and um, one of the women who was asking for money actually gave me parking advice because after 6 o'clock at night, 
it's free. And I was going to check the meter just to be sure. But she was like, oh, it's free after six. And I was like, oh. So And I went inside. I was, Thank you. And I go inside. And I realize I have money in my pocket. I was like, she actually just provided me a service. I'm going to give her the $2 I have in my wallet right now, you know. But part of the problem for me also with this is when you do have money in your wallet, right, if I have a 20 in my wallet, I can't, I can't afford to give you the $20, right? So you have to – when I was a kid my gra- and I would go on vacation with my grandparents, my grandfather would go to the bank and just get 50 ones before we right. even left Although, so uh, he could tip everybody. A friend of mine – we're yeah. going to have to end this as well. I have time for Lady Bird. A friend of mine who maybe makes a little bit more money than all of us put together but nonetheless <laughs> uh, was uh, passing by a guy who was kind of self-identifying as a homeless veteran, blah, 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 blah. And this guy only, this guy that I know only had a hundred dollars in his wallet. I mean, like a hundred dollar bill in his wallet, and he thought, "Screw it," and he just gave it to the guy. Oh, wow. <laughs> and he said, "You know, the reaction was like when the it it like took a minute or so for this mm-hmm. man to understand that he had just been handed a one hundred dollar bill, and then like a whole bunch of fairly magical things happened. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think Pope Francis should adjust the Lord's Prayer to say you got to give him the smallest denomination. <laughs> yeah. Well, bill, oh, I just have to know. say, a lady caught me coming out of church Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and all I had was a 20 Mm -hmm. and I said I'm just coming out of church Uh, Jesus would give the lady Mm -hmm. the money so I just gave the lady the money Mm -hmm. then X amount of time later I realized that's her spot and her time and she knows she's getting people (laughs) as they're coming out of church but that that made me think and now if I don't feel like it or if it's inconvenient Mm -hmm. I'll just say or if it's at night Mm -hmm. and I'm at a gas station and I'm like no, well, go I, ask a man. Yeah. <laughs> Don't ask me. I, I think there's always going to be scam artists, essentially, mm-hmm. of course. But I do think that in a society with such rapidly increase, increasing inequity mm-hmm. as we're faced with now, we have to think as ordinary people who have enough income to buy a meal, for example, that you, you have to be thinking about people who can't yeah. and mm-hmm. people who can't get that money together, that it is a responsibility to say, do what your grandfather did. Yeah, uh, get those 50 ones. Get those 50 mm-hmm. ones be, in your wallet. Be an order mu- muppet. Figure it out in <laughs> yeah. advance yeah. so you'll know what to do. All right, we do have to take a break. Our ladybird is going to get shortchanged. You should pardon the pun. We'll be back after this. All right, so uh, Lady Bird is um, already something of an independent movie smash hit. Uh, it has done this weird, impossible thing of at least temporarily getting a 100 rating among critics uh, on Rotten Tomato. I didn't even know you could do that. Um, everybody uh, seems to love it. It is the directorial debu- debut of Greta Gerwig, formerly known as an actress, uh, mainly in a lot of Noah Baumbach movies. But she's also really, really good in 20th, 20th Century Women, I want to, uh, re- yeah. which is not directed by Noah Baumbach. Um, and so anyway, this is a, a movie. It's a type of movie that we know pretty well. It's about the, the, high, the unexceptional high school person, the person who's not doing well in the high school caste system in terms of achievement, attractiveness, coolness, income. Um, our, our friend Lady Bird isn't really doing well in any of those categories. Plus, she has a very tough relationship with her, her mother, played by, uh, by the wonderful Laurie Metcalf. Saoirse Ronan plays 
this uh, ladybird. You're going to hear them here. Uh, one of the tensions in this movie is that the family doesn't have a lot of money, doesn't have as much money as most of Lady Bird's high school peers. Um, so uh, Laurie Metcalf, as the mother, Marion, I think is her, her actual name, uh, is sort of constantly telling Lady Bird all of the things that are not possible because of who they are and who she is. Let's hear that clip. I want to go where culture is, okay, like New York, I raise such or at least snob. Connecticut or New Hampshire, well, where writers live in the get woods. Get into those schools anyway. Mom! You can't even pass your driver's test. Because you wouldn't let me practice The way enough. that you work, or the, or the way that you don't work, you're not even worth state tuition, Christine. My name is Ladybird. Uh, well, actually, it's not, and it's ridiculous. Call me Ladybird like Christine. you said you would. Just, you should just go to City College. You know, with your work ethic, just go to City College, and then to jail, and then back to City College, and then maybe you'd learn to pull yourself up and not expect everybody to do everything. <laughs> so... That's one of the first scenes that that is pretty much the first encounter we have with these two people. Uh, we learn so much more about their, their relationship as things go along. Uh, so I just uh, once again, I'll just go around the table and get uh, general reactions. Uh, James, let's start with you. What, what was this movie uh, for you? Well, I really ended up loving it. I have to say when I was first uh, hearing about the movie some months ago, I wasn't really uh, deeply into it. But I have to say um, it really drew me in for all of its complexity and sort of like – Things that normally you cringe at, you actually get drawn into the complexity of the relationship between mother and daughter, for example, and uh, the insecurities that are there and the um, threats. But then you have this – I don't know. I, I think Greta Gerwig's uh, – one of her great talents with her characters that she plays is this underlying river of emotion that comes out in unexpected ways. And I thought Lady Bird – I, at the end of it, I felt really as though I'd been on a real roller coaster emotionally, and Susha Ronan managed to link into a sort of sense of of a vigorous desire to be who she wanted to be, but she didn't really know what that was, and she's got all of these obstacles around her. But then there's the character of her father, who's intensely supportive with barely saying a word. And it, lots of things that, um, I mean, when teenage characters are having trouble in high school, you're so used to the angst being on a certain sort of, I don't know, I don't know quite how to describe it, but a superficial level. Mm -hmm. But this seems to really take that character seriously. And Saoirse Ronan really runs with it. And Greta Gerwig has an ability to marshal all of these sort of chaotic elements and actually make you feel like you, you, you really lived that story by the end of it. We should say this father is played with beautiful suffering and resignation uh, by the actor-playwright uh, Tracy Letts. This movie has a lot of people that have kind of big stage careers. I mean, Laurie Metcalf, who is a fabulous actress, has mainly been a stage actress, although there are notable exceptions to that. Anyway, uh, so Kate, uh, w what did you find or not find in this movie? Well, I laughed out loud a lot mm -hmm. at many of the small moments and the different shifts in tone, you know, from frustration to anger, uh, you know, it was funny. And I actually would like to see it again with an audience that will laugh with me mm -hmm. and, and really enjoy that. You know, I got this image uh, of the movie uh, aesthetically and the way the movie is structured. Uh, do you remember the, the pop beads? Maybe you don't remember this, Colin, but there were pop beads when I was a kid they were plastic. They oh, were yeah, color, and you could pull them apart right. and put them back together. Yeah. The movie reminded me of those a string of pop beads <laughs> that you could take apart and put back together. 
and it also, I think, had the you mean aesthetic. This, you mean in the sense that it doesn't go from A to B to C to D to yes. E to F? It just mm-hmm. kind of these are kind of these little discrete uh, moments. Yeah, that are, are kind of strung together helter skelter. Yes, a bit. yes, yes. And also, I thought that uh, Gerwig really got the homescape of a mildly chaotic uh, working class, lower upper class household where the mom is overworked and and the dad is uh, underemployed or unemployed. And I, I thought it was really, she really did a great job of communicating that whole landscape, homescape. Before Teresa goes, let's hear a little clip that uh, perfectly reflects this. This is um, Breakfast uh, in the Lady Bird household, which includes mom, dad, Lady Bird, her brother Miguel, and then uh, Miguel's uh, significant other who under only semi-explained circumstances has come to live also with a family. And you'll hear some or all of them here. Why can't I just make the eggs? Because you take too long, you make a big mess, and I have to clean the whole thing up. Eggs aren't good for the environment anyways. What? You heard her. Quickly, please. Look at all these pictures. Every newspaper looks like USA Today. Shelly and I are trying to be vegan. Hence the soy milk. You wear leather jackets. But they're vintage, so they don't support the industry. They aren't done. There's white stuff. You know how much you have brambles? Pigs are smarter than him, even. I never thought brambles was a genius, okay? Mom, the eggs are not done. Fine, make your own eggs. I wanted to. You won't let me. Sister doesn't like me. I'm hungry. She does. There's your chance. Going to bed. All right, so it's a little bit more of Lady Bird. Teresa, what did you uh, see or feel or hear there? Well, so at the very end there, the the thing that stood out to me, they were playing the Alanis Morissette song there at the beginning. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> mm-hmm. So this movie is my generation, right? It starts mm-hmm. in about 2003 to 2000, 2002 to 2003, I think, which it is her senior year in high school and would have been my senior year in college. So... I related so much to this in a way I don't normally to these sort of coming of age movies in part because just I, you know, there's a part where she's in her coffee shop job and there's an Ani DeFranco song playing in the background. And I'm sad that Kion's not here to have that ready because I'm sure she would have noticed. And, you know, there's a scene where they're in a car, her, her and her best friend are in the car and they're kind of crying. And the Dave Matthews song that we were all forced to listen to for like yes. 10 years <laughs> comes on. And that's one of the parts where I really just laughed out loud because I was like, oh, God, yes, yes. This was <laughs> this was the early 2000s, late 90s. And it's also a very we, we were cool. all oppressed by Dave Matthews, not just your generation. <laughs> not <Continue. laughs> Dave, Dave Matthews oppressing people since 1993. Um, and then there, there's sort of the post 9/11ness of it, you know. She, when she, mm-hmm. at the end, when she finally is in New York, she kind of realizes that the, probably the only reason she got to be there at all was because no one was applying to college in New York because they were afraid of terrorism. And I really, I normally a movie like this would. I would sometimes like it, but a character like Lady Bird would really irk me. Like she's just very bratty in in a lot of ways, and. And can be, um, and I'm also just sort of personally annoyed by these sort of hapless characters who can't get out of their own way and like mess things up for themselves and then like complain when their life doesn't turn out the way they want to be. 
But because it was so specific to my generation, I think I liked it a lot more than I would have otherwise. I, I want to say just in general that the um, this this could have been a movie that was much more about the push and pull between uh, Laurie Metcalf's mom uh, and Saoirse Ronan's daughter. Mm-hmm. But this is in, in the way that Kate – I love the image of the pop beads. Uh, the way that mm-hmm. Kate is saying it's not a movie about any one thing. It's right. not a movie that sort of exists as a particular kind of tension. It's, it, it's this melange uh, of tensions. And, and as a result, it relies – rather heavily on kind of an ensemble cast. I mean, we've mentioned, mentioned some pretty prominent actors who are in this, but very quickly, you have the great Lois Smith, who is always great in pretty much everything, as a nun of all things, <laughs> <laughs> and a really great nun at that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephen McKinley Henderson plays a, a depressed uh, African-American uh, theater, uh, priest and theater coach. Uh, I don't want to say anything more about it. It is a remarkable performance. I, I, I think it's a, I could have been taken maybe two or three more of those pop beads mm-hmm. uh, 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 of that particular character and his his dilemma. And I know Kate feels the same way. Uh, Lucas Hedges uh, and Timothy Chalamet, who are the probably the two hottest young kind of art movie uh, male kind of high school, college age icons are the two men that, that uh, social Ronan gets involved with. They're very, very different. I don't want to say anything about how they're different, but they're different in very complicated ways from one another. Neither one of them, I think it's fair to say, is is the Prince Charming she might be looking for. But so, I mean, one of the things I loved about this, Kate, was just everywhere you looked, there were really, really interesting people, um, maybe n- so many interesting people that it was a little bit frustrating at times. It was always a snack, not a meal. Yeah, and I really could have used more of uh, Marion, the mother's backstory, mm-hmm. Not a whole lot more, but I would have liked a, a little bit more. We, 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 she tells us that you know she had a hard, abusive childhood, but that just comes out in one line. And I would have liked to have had a little bit more of her backstory mm-hmm. and a touch more, just a touch more of her transformation um, uh, at the end. And just one little little thing that uh, about one of the boyfriends, Kyle, that cracked me up. Uh, he's pretty pretentious and full of himself, and he was always reading um, uh, the People's History of the United States by Harold <laughs> Howard Zinn. Zinn yeah. As was she at a certain point too. We eventually see the book transferred into her hands. Speaking of that, James, so you know, um, Teresa, I think, uh, rightly pins this movie down in a particular moment. But one of the ways that of that that particular moment is utilized, it reminded me a little bit of the first Iraq invasion uh, in uh, the Big Lebowski, is uh, the war in Iraq. Somehow or other, without any real commentary, without any real linkage, it's just on the television a lot. Is that a throw? I feel like she does. That nothing should be really a throwaway in this movie, but I couldn't quite understand what, if anything, was being said about that. Well, I think that that's one of the keys to this movie. That is Greta Gerwig in her parts, in her and in what what she's talked about, is a person who's acutely aware of all of this sort of background material and detail and how that operates. And I think it's very significant. I think the presence of the, uh, of the people's history and how that is used as a prop. But there's also, I mean, the whole film, all of the characters are involved in a kind of chaotic non-relationship. But if you actually watch Laurie Metcalf and Saoirse Ronan uh, going at each other, Saoirse Ronan is building her character off her mother 
um, in a way that is making her, I think, very strong, uh, where she perceived before that she wasn't. And so she's fearless in arguing with her mother. And then her mother turns on her and then, you know, basically said, well, why don't you go to free school? You know, you're not even worth in-state tuition. You know, these these insulting things. But the... the, the <clears throat> All of that brings in all kinds of background information about class mm -hmm. in terms of who goes to school where. Mm -hmm. And what about the West and the East? You know, what what does all of that mean? And it's it, it's unusual in a movie, I think, to bring in all of those things and actually have them mean something. And I think they are significant. It's not throwaways. And you get a feeling of somebody with an intellect uh, who's actually writing this, who's actually seeing that these things are connected. It's kind of like, the, the we, you know, we're talking about the meaning of language. And the meaning of language is being viciously attacked at the moment and being used as a tool to indicate exactly the opposite of what it says. And so it's incredibly important to have that kind of intellectual capability to take apart exactly what is meant here, what is going on, how is this young girl going to grow into the world, how, what does it mean that her mother is, is, is using those terms, those demeaning terms with her, and like sort of, it's, it's almost like you know, sparks flying and something being created in the process that is very important. I, um uh, Teresa, you'll get the last word on this. Although I, I do want to say, I do feel as though Lady Bird does belong in this um, uh, this canon of kind of lovable high school losers that we've seen mm -hmm. a lot of movies about. You expressed in your comments a little bit of a frustration with some of those. Mm -hmm. um, I think, to me, as I said in the emails, the person she reminds me the most, most of is John Cusack's Lloyd Dobler, who's like this unexceptional guy, but but is good-hearted. Mm -hmm. And there's a way in which, for all the trouble that Lady Bird causes. She seems like an extraordinarily good-hearted person. That that's maybe the thing that's. I mean, when she attempts to play a very vicious prank on the nun, and it's just <laughs> so yeah. ridiculously <laughs> not vicious yeah. that it becomes kind of comic in in, in its proportions. Mm -hmm. And there's something about that too that maybe what ultimately rescues us, even if we don't conform to the high school standards of, of beauty or excellence, mm -hmm. is who we are inside. Well, yeah, and I think be, this movie sort. of, one of the things I think that stands out for this movie a little bit more, too, in terms of the teen angst movies of years past is that we get a much fuller picture of the adults in her world. Like you actually I mean, you I, I was like, would you just listen to your mother as opposed to, you know, say a John Hughes movie where you would just be like the parents are monsters run away. You know, th these Everyone is so much more fully realized that it makes them less of a caricature and it's easier to like everybody. That's a great point. We're going to have to stop it there just while we'll have time to make some recommendations. Uh, I think all of us would recommend that you see Lady Bird. See it soon because it's being praised so much that there is that phenomenon of you go to a movie and you've heard too much wonderful stuff about it. It can never be that movie anymore. But So go see it right now before it's ruined. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants, Betsy Kaplan, and me, Kion Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by John Cusack. Next week, we got specials and reruns for you till Thursday. And now. 
back to Colin. I will quickly say that on Thursday, uh, we are, are continuing a tradition that we've been done, been doing every year. Uh, Jim Chapdelaine, uh, um, regularly of the nose, uh, and Big Al Anderson, formerly of NRBQ and the Wild Weeds. The three of us gather in the studio with anybody else that we can coerce into it, and we just uh, we've known each other for a long time. The three of us, and we just tell stories, and we sing songs, and we make other people sing songs, and it's kind of a end of the year, ideally kind of feel good as well as as good as you're capable of feeling at this point, which you know may have some limitations to it, uh, but a, a feel good uh, New Year's holiday special. So that's what's on Thursday. All right, let's make some recommendations. What have you got for us, Teresa? I've been listening to a podcast called Uncivil, and it's um, Jack Hitt, who you'll probably know from yeah, know um, This American Life. And Jack's been on the nose at least once. Oh, really? Yeah. And then um, a guy named Chenjirai Komunika. I've, I, I'm probably really murdering that name. But um, it's sort of the untold stories around the Civil War, and ha- and there are some really fascinating tales out there. And I can't recommend it enough. I mean, Jack Hitt is, uh, I mean, he's a This American Life alum, so you know it's good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that sounds great. Uh, mm-hmm. Uncivil. And you can mm-hmm. just sort of find that wherever podcasts and are Wherever sold. podcasts are. Yeah. All right. So, uh, James, well, what have you got for us? A couple of books. One will make you feel kind of uneasy, but it's an important thing to think about called World Without Mind by Franklin Foer, which I had mm-hmm. sitting around that I wanted to read, and I started reading. I couldn't stop. It's really a fascinating um Analysis, really, of what we're presented with, the way we absorb words and ideas and how we are completely subverted by the electronic universe around us. That's part of it, anyway. A very interesting read for right now. And also— Does it, does it include—I I think it, I might have read some, something that was an excerpt about his time at the New Republic, where yes. uh, our digital entrepreneur uh, stepped in and attempted to save the New Republic and then sort of succumbed <laughs> yes. to all the, the, the befuddlements that the digital and temptations, to go back to our earlier discussion, yes. he, he is led into temptations. Yes, exactly, exactly. And, and it's the first uh, piece that I've really read that, that really tries to tie those things together. And in terms of your daily life as a person, trying to make sense of what your what ideas are and whether there is any place where ideas can be actually discussed in depth in a way that actually leads somewhere that people feel they have some sort of control and they're not just responding to Facebook or mm-hmm. tweets or whatever. Um, the other book, uh, which is one um, I, I carrying around with me all the time now, Timothy Snyder's On Tyranny, mm-hmm. 20 Lessons from the 20th Century. I, I've is, I've had it for a long time now. It's, it's a really amazing book. And it, it could be a stocking stuffer, too. Yes. And if you need to yes. stuff somebody's stocking, it will fit in. It's into a tiny the, book. And a it's tiny book that you can put really right amazing, in the yes. stocking. All right. So, uh, Kate Russian, what have you got for us? All right. I've been really enjoying season two of The Crown on mm-hmm. Netflix. Which we will be discussing next week on this show. But anyway, All continue. right. So... Uh, it's the this, this, it's the fictionalized version of the relationship of Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip against the backdrop of history, and it's just a great soap opera with great costumes and acting and sets. And related to that, the New York Times uh, has a link uh, to the history behind season two, and so you can actually click and see um, articles that were published in the Times uh, during the time that's covered in The Crown. Which you'll want to do, I think it's fair to say, too. Suez Crisis and Princess Margaret's 
uh, love life and, and her I, marriage to Anthony Armstrong and Jones. And I, I think also um, Edward VIII. They have a wonderful guy playing Edward VIII. There have been a lot of people who yes. tried to play that role. And, yeah. and we all knew he was a Nazi sympathizer, but this takes that whole narrative further than I've ever seen it taken. So yeah. you do want to know more about that. Yes, and, and, and uh, coincidentally, Christine Keeler just passed a couple of recently – and I remember all the headlines when I was a kid that this was a major scandal mm-hmm. that was on every cover, and we read about that too. All right. Sounds great. Um, so what have I got? I've got a couple of things. First of all, this isn't a full-fledged endorsement, but the movie that uh, Lady Bird reminds me the most of is a movie that came out last year called The Edge of Seventeen. It is not as good a movie as um, Lady Bird. It will probably profoundly annoy Teresa Kramer if she hasn't already <laughs> watched it because uh, Haley Steinfeld plays one of those teenagers who really can't get out of her own way at all and to a degree that almost it really does become fairly frustrating as you go along but she has a r- remarkable relationship with a high school teacher played by Woody Harrelson who lately just is like really good in stuff I mean I've just been enjoying uh, Harrelson's performance uh, in, in stuff like uh, Three Billboards and this a lot so if you want something that's a little bit like Lady Bird it just doesn't have the kind of command of detail that we've been talking about with Lady Bird but um, has some good things in it, you know. So for casual watching over a long holiday weekend, it might work. Um, I think I'm endorsing this next thing for the third time. <laughs> but, I, but I can't stop saying this, that, you know, as I'm thinking about all the stuff that I've watched on television this year, Mozart and I keep coming back to Mozart in the Jungle, which I'm not all the way through yet anyway because I started in it very late. And there's a way in which there's a message about art that we need to hear. Um, and there's a message about what art can do to lift us and what happens when we believe in the arts. Uh, and first of all, the, the, um, the performance by Gail Garcia Bernal, is, it's kind of unlike anything I can compare it to. He's an amazing actor anyway, uh, loved him in lots of movies. This taps into something that I just have never seen in him before and in anybody else. He plays uh, a conductor based somewhat on Dudamel's, uh, Dudamel of the Los Angeles Symphony, but, but his name is Rodrigo. Um, he is a, just a feast for your senses. And then so is everybody else. And it's kind of a lot of attractive people uh, playing beautiful music, you know. So if you don't know Sibelius Fifth or, Fifth or something, you know, you're going to get a good dose of it. Uh, and, and fabulous people like Monica Bellucci in smaller rows roles as this tortured uh, soprano living in, in Venice. So you get to see a lot of Venice. You get to see a lot of Mexico City. Beautiful sets and locations and beautiful people and beautiful music. Uh, so what's what's not to like? And so, I don't know. I, like, it's only, I think the episodes, has anybody else watched this here? I'm not the only person. So the episodes, I think, are only like 30, 35 minutes long. So that's the other thing. You can kind of snack on it. You know, if you're feeling... As we are in the winter, deprived in a sensory way, you can just get a 35-minute dose of these really attractive people playing beautiful music. Um, I want to thank uh, all of you for coming in here, this wonderful uh, news panel of Kate Russian and James Hanley and Teresa Kramer. Also, my wonderful staff. I get to work with them all year long. I've got one more week of working with them, although we're only going to do two new shows next week. But it's always a thrill to work with Betsy Kaplan and Jonathan McPants and uh, Josh Nalea and Kion Wolf and our big boss, Katie Tularski. So thanks for making the year go so great. <laughs>